0: Today we've got questions on the Kingdom of Greece, the history of Egypt, and Charles reviews his top five favorite off-the-menu moments. Welcome to another episode of Off the Menu, now being broadcast and podcast on the Crusade Channel. Talk greater the way it should be at crusadechannel.com. I'm your host, Vincent Frankini from Tumblr House, here with a Fletcherite, Charles Coulomb
1: fletcherite you mean I I, to avoid castigation I indulge in mastication
0: right mm-hmm. like Horace
1: Fletcher like, yeah like Horace Fletcher taught well that's weird uh, it's not true either I mean I wolf my food down you know I, I like to feel the chunks of food going down I, I don't Horace Fletcher for those who don't know or care uh, was a food fattest for the early part of the, uh, the late 19th, early 20th centuries, 1849, 1919. Uh, so he was, uh, he was an old guy when he, when he stuffed it. So there must have been something to what he was doing. But basically, he had a food deal, which was chew your food until it's totally liquid before you swallow it. small small bites and you should even chew your your drinks, you know, so that you mix them with the saliva. And then he claimed that if you did that, you wouldn't get, you'd live longer, you'd be stronger, uh, and you know, you'd be rich, beautiful, and close to God. Uh, I don't know what else to say except that he was a co-founder of the Bohemian Club in San Francisco. So he was possibly one of the plotters. Oh, he was rich off that? He was rich off something. You couldn't, enjoy the, you couldn't have co-founded the Bohemian Club, or for that matter, been a member of New Orleans' prestigious uh, Boston Club, without having some of the old do re Wow.
0: Okay. Um, <clears throat> that sounds really involved. I wonder how much you have to chew your food in order to get it liquid.
1: I'm not going to try.
0: I'm not going to try either. That sounds like you're not even enjoying your food. I mean, if you're if you're doing that, it sounds so
1: tedious. It, it sounds very te- tedious. And, uh, it would be very difficult to keep up any kind of a conversation at dinner. you have been concentrating.
0: He didn't live to be that old. I mean, I guess relatively speaking for that time, he lived to be
1: sixty-nine, which is almost seventy. Yeah, so he
0: died in nineteen nineteen. So okay, so you're not a Fletcherite.
1: No, no, it's a it's a lie. It's an utter lie from the pit of Berkeley.
0: The pit of Berkeley. How does Berkeley come into it?
1: Because. The, one of the last remaining strongholds of, of Fletcherism is in Berkeley California. I don't
0: know if I believe
1: you you uh, know you you all uh, night I, I don't it was the same with the patron show All night you've been in this weird uh, uh, hypercritical mood. Oh I don't believe that. It was the same with the uh, you know the revelation about the Paravis Wall. Uh, In the patron show, you like, "No, I don't believe that." Well, stop telling lies, then. Lies? (laughs) They're hardly lies. It's called creative reality. Creative reality. Alternative facts.
0: (laughs) Alternative facts.
1: Yes, alternative facts. So, like for instance, are France and England separated by the English Channel? Yes. Okay, but it could be an alternative fact that they're separated by the North Sea. or well, no, not the North Sea, by the Mediterranean. Or it could be an alternative fact that they're actually not separated at all.
0: You know, I had to... I wanted to know if, if you just made up that alternative facts thing and like... And you didn't somehow. I can't believe you did. did. I I I Googled it, and the the featured snippet, it says, Alternative Facts was a phrase used by U.S. Counselor to the President, Kellyanne Conway, during a Meet the Press interview on January 22, 2017, in which he defended White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer's false statement about the attendance numbers of Donald Trump's inauguration as President of the United States. So that's the term Kellyanne Conway used, was it's an alternative fact.
1: It's an (laughs) alternative fact.
0: What? Modern society continues to impress.
1: If it's good enough for the president, it's good enough for me. Same as senility for the current guy. I mean, look, if Joe Biden could be president and be off his head, why do the rest of us have to be on ours? Why does society continue to demand uh, coherence and intelligence out of us? Why can't we be like our president? I don't know. I think it's discrimination, frankly. It's thoughtism.
0: There is this giant Wikipedia – the Wikipedia article on alternative facts ended up being weaponized against Donald Trump entirely. And it's got this giant um, this giant piece on proving that um, Barack Obama's uh, attendance for the inauguration is the best compared to George W. Bush and Donald Trump. Barack well, Obama is yeah, the I best. Mean,
1: yeah. They were busting people in. But you know, it's funny, it is the, the supporters of Donald Trump and the supporters of Barack Obama had certain things in common. Um, what? Each thought this was going to be a transformative moment in the history of the United States. I
0: thought I thought Obama transformed a lot of things.
1: I mean, for the better.
0: Well, I mean, uh, okay, for the better, sure.
1: I I remember a friend of mine who was very, very pro-Obama uh, when he was, and he campaigned for him, about a year and a half after the election, two years, he was complaining to me, what a letdown down the whole thing had been. And I said to him, there are two problems here. The first is that you're trying to get a religious experience out of politics. And that's just like trying to get drunk off grape juice or, or orange juice. You know, you can't do it. <laughs> the second is that, well, let me ask you this, I said, would you have voted for a maiden senator who had never had a real job other than being in the Senate and who was created by the daily machine of Chicago? Oh, certainly not. I said, but you did. You allowed the color of his skin to obscure the content of his character, to quote a phrase. You didn't even bother to check until I just mentioned it. You didn't know anything really about him other than he was hes for change, the change you can believe it. Well, similarly, I had a conversation about a year and a half after Trump came in. A fellow who'd been, you know, a wild Trump supporter. He was one of these guys, you may remember, uh... In the beginning of Trump's reign, there were these people who had the phrase God, Emperor, Trump, and things like that. Yeah, uh, He was one of these. And he was going on in almost exact terms of the disappointment he'd gone through. And I said, same as I said to the other guy, I said, number one, you seek your religious experience out of politics, and you can't do it. You're trying to get drunk off arches. It ain't happening. But the second thing, is that uh you know the Trumpster is a businessman, he's not the Messiah, he's not a normal politician which has strengths, God knows, and has weaknesses. But you were looking for messiahship out of him and he just can't give it to you. Any more than Barack could give it to my other friend.
0: Definitely true. Definitely agree. Definitely um <clears throat> You know, I I have to play a little bit of devil's advocate. I'm not political at all, but I have to bring it up, which is so...
1: Oh, who would I vote for, Trump versus Barack? Trump.
0: Well, you're voting for Trump.
1: I have to. I promised I would.
0: You did, and you promised you would, because you promised that if you put the judges in that repeal, Roe v. Wade, you would... And so I felt I feel like uh, uh, obligatory to the Trumpster's reputation. He, that's a big box to check off. I mean, we we were. I remember when we were doing shows in 2016 and 2017, we were talking like that's going to be the law of the land for the next 300 years, and now it's off. It's off now. The books. It's
1: off, and instead, the American people have proved that they like dead babies.
0: That's true. It's true, but I mean, uh, that's the limited power of the president, right? Like, Do you want the the president uh, to regulate the the individual states,
1: too? uh, If the individual states were capable of virtue, or the president was, or somebody was. But, you (laughs) see, we've all taken the Kool-Aid. What do you mean? Well, I mean, look, ultimately, we've all got along with the baby-killing regime. And that baby-killing regime has branched out, as things will. They never stay with one vice. So euthanasia is a part of it. Uh, child mutilation is a part of it. All of these things. Uh, even the COVID regime was part of it. So.
0: Well, I, I personally like that. I I really like that because that puts the responsibility on us as a people. And because I feel like people generally say, well, you know, it's on the president. He won't do this. He won't do that. It's on these, you know, political people. Yeah,
1: Stop. Self-responsibility is purely for adults. (laughs) Okay. We're Americans, my God. We fought a war. We fought a revolution to free ourselves of that kind of garbage. And we won. Let me tell you something. <laughs> Let me tell you something, Mr. Smart Guy. <laughs> okay. Lexington and Concord, Valley Ford, <laughs> okay. Okay. Yorktown. That was when farmers and merchants from all over the 13 colonies banded together and said, We're going to fight our rich friends wars and we're going to win. <laughs> And they did. <laughs> and let me tell you something else. You know, if, if it weren't for that, if it weren't for that tremendous victory, Smedley Butler would never have had the job he had.
0: It, that's um, that's a pre-show reference. We talked about Smedley Butler, who fought a lot of wars, mm. and he became very anti-war because he said it's just. Fighting for rich people, so people can get more money.
1: Yeah, but he wouldn't. He wouldn't have been able to say that under Barack Obama.
0: Well, that's that's very true. That's very. And true. Let me tell you
1: something else. Let me tell you something else. Uh, Joe Biden got us out of Afghanistan.
0: Okay, go on. He did. Yeah. See. Okay. And and. And Governor Newsom is the first person that really fought poverty. He re- he really yes. took it to the homeless. He really addressed the homeless situation.
1: He did. He did. Do you know that when he was having his famous maskless party at the French Laundry, all of the dishwashers and the trash people and all that at the French Laundry were living on the, below the poverty line? But he brought their money during the midst of COVID. Excellent, and he may be your next president after uh, Biden. You know, if, finally loses. His if
0: I were him, I would say, "Let's make America like California," and I would no, campaign on that. That's what I want him to campaign on. See, every see how good I did in California. Let's make America like that.
1: Yeah. Think of think of America as a, a chain of homeless tents from San Francisco okay. to New York. We're reinventing community. That's right. (laughs) I mean, don't you hear people constantly complaining that modern folks are separated from each other?
0: That's right. I mean, the suburbs, it's like, you know, everyone's on their own island,
1: you know? Yeah. But imagine (laughs) you could live in your tent and you'd have neighbors on all four sides.
0: And the whole thing of um, interdependence, right, that thing we're longing for, this interconnectedness, would be a whole new level.
1: Oh man, boy! Would everybody be interconnected? Let me tell you, and not just with each other, but with welfare, (laughs) and the county sheriffs. That's
0: right. Political involvement,
1: (laughs) with with the
0: institutions,
1: and also people. You know, you'd be surprised at the kind of uh, arts and crafts that come out of homeless settlements.
0: Yeah, like what?
1: Hash pipes. (laughs) Needles.
0: Makes sense. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And you could have that from C to C. Yep.
0: (sighs) Well, never mind.
1: (laughs) I suppose, though, I should make a housekeeping announcement. Okay. I'm going on another Three Kingdoms tour. But it's going to be a little different this time. Okay. Here's the plan. Uh, On the 16th, I plan to, uh, with uh, the inimitable Dan Devine, I plan to leave uh, Trumau via Vienna to go to Ireland. But instead of going to the north, this time we're going to hit the south, from Dublin to Cork, uh, maybe Cashel. Limerick, then back to Dublin. On the 25th of, uh, Ma- of March, we will fly to, you ready? Edinburgh. Mm. And from the 25th through the 29th, we'll go up to the highlands, we'll explore uh, Edinburgh, we'll go up to the highlands, Inverness, and London, back down, uh, and then to uh, Preston, for the Trinuum and Holy Week, Uh, not Holy Week, the Trinuum and Easter. Easter Sunday, we will drive down via Birmingham and the Midlands to London, and then we'll be there until, I think, the 6th. So we'll have to uh, to find places to uh, on the weekends, of course, to, you guessed it, continue doing the show. And so, Theo Howard, you know who I'm talking about. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to mention names. Ross McEwen, we will need your facilities.
0: (laughs) Wow. Wow.
1: Called out. Okay. No, no, no. I don't want to put pressure on anybody. (laughs) I don't want to put pressure on
0: anyone. I I know you'd never do that.
1: I know you... No. No, but I just those who hear this and have uh, a- access to uh, to places where we can do uh, do the show from afar you know you''re you're, you're called on best of all although I don't have one you'll be glad to know that there'll be a traveling with us a laptop Beautiful. and you know what that means
0: yeah the show, must go on the show goes on um,
1: yeah both mm-hmm. it must go on but it will go on
0: right okay
1: yeah now we we do have a uh, we do have a uh, a little problem with going back to the three kingdoms apart from the fact that both of us had our sta- our, our passports stamped not valid for travel within the united kingdom of the republic of ireland other than that <laughs> Wait. Well, because of, because of what happened last year. What? What well, happened yeah, last year? A, well, a few little problems, nothing big.
0: Are you messing with me? Okay, you're, that did happen. <laughs> that didn't happen. Okay.
1: Okay. Uh, how long have I known you? A l- really long time. Have I ever messed with you before?
0: All the time, constantly, daily, every time you see me.
1: Do you think it might have happened again? (laughs) (laughs) No. uh, Actually, all kidding aside, I am looking forward to this, uh, not least, uh, because amongst the places I hope to get to are uh, uh, the uh, Chapel at Windsor, St. George's Chapel, Windsor, which uh, I've been there before, but uh it has the tombs both of Henry the Sixth who is the servant of God and the inimitable Charles I uh, Westminster Abbey has the uh, the shrine of St Edward the Confessor uh, north of Edinburgh uh, is dunferlin and the shrine of St Margaret of Scotland and in Edinburgh is the uh, uh, the shrine of uh, the national shrine of St Andrew the Apostle why do I mention all this? Because you guessed it right, ladies and gentlemen. You'll all be prayed for at those places. Uh, but seriously, anybody on those routes, if you can uh, render any assistance, just get in touch. The, uh, the, the doubtful, uh, the doubtful uh, r- return you'll get on that is that you'll have the doubtful pleasure of meeting me. Also, uh, it, it uh, turns out that I will be speaking in Portsmouth, England, uh, at St. Agatha's Church on June 8th, uh, celebrating uh, for a requiem for uh, Pope Benedict the 16th I'll be giving a talk on the Anglican patrimony and the ordinariates. And St. Agatha's, I've not been there before, but I've seen pictures. It is the most extraordinarily beautiful uh Catholic Church of Anglican origin in the uh, entire UK. Some people might want to fight with me on that, but I believe it to be true.
0: Yeah, so go help Charles out. Um, He's. I think you'll find he's the same in real life as he is on the show.
1: He's just like this. You know, (laughs) know, when people say that, I, I got. I've got to be honest with you. When people say that to me, I don't know really. I don't really know what to say to that. What are they expecting? You know, I'm going to have two heads. You know, but time and again, this is true, ladies and gentlemen. People said, you know, you're just the same in real life as you are on the show. What you see is what you get. I I, I don't know. I don't know what they're expecting. I mean, I hope they're not disappointed. But, you know, we, we were hoping you'd be sane. <laughs> "What? What? What a disappointment that was!" We were hoping it was just an act. <laughs> you really are out of it. <laughs> oh, Well, thank you. <laughs> but no, ladies and gentlemen, seriously, uh, it's it is times like this that uh, I do think of the uh, the last. Was this six years now? Or Seven, eight.
0: It's eight. In June of twenty sixteen, we started.
1: Eight years this year. Golly, Moses, ladies and gentlemen, can you imagine eight years? I don't think we even thought about how long we might be doing it. I don't think there was there was even a question. It was just
0: yeah. Well. It just keeps working out, and God wills that, you know, it's quite clear, you know, we're meant to keep doing this. So it's going to keep doing it as long as God wants us to do it.
1: And then we'll stop.
0: <laughs> Gosh.
1: God doesn't want it anymore, so you're getting nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I promise you, ladies and gentlemen, if as isn't when that day comes, we're never going to put it like that. <laughs> Gra- gravy trains come to a halt. You're all out of luck now. <laughs> no more free ride, you guys. And you patrons know it's not a free ride, so you see. But no, seriously. Uh, long may it be. You know, I, I think if if we make it to to ten years, we'll have to do something really unusual. That's right. That's for sure. We, well, yeah. You know. At any rate, why, let's why don't we get to the order of business, the business of the day? Absol- uh, oh wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I, forgot, I forgot. I forgot. I forgot. I forgot. I've got. To, I've got to mention this. i have got to mention it. Okay. A week. A week. From tomorrow, Sunday, will be Leitare Sunday. And why do I mention this? Because you obviously will be seeing this before it happens, tomorrow. And the next show will be after it's happened, so I have to mention it now. It's one of my pet peeves. Leitare Sunday is the fourth Sunday at Lent. Like Yaudete Sunday, the third Sunday at Advent, It is a time when the penitential nature of the season is somewhat relaxed. And that relaxation is expressed in the color of the vestments worn by the priest on that Sunday. Now, this is a very specific color only worn twice a year. Hmm. It's not pink. No, no, no. It's called Old Rose. So when you hear somebody refer to pink vestments, they're rose-colored vestments. You can look, you can see the world through rose-colored vestments and see what you get. But just remember that I—I I was actually at Mass with Mike Dykes, that is, his then future wife Beverly. And you know how Mike is; he, he gets things really annoy him very quickly. So. The priest comes out, it's, it's, I forget it was Le Gardete. it was one of them. He comes out, he's in polyester rose vestments, and he says, I've always looked pretty in pink. And Beverly and I really had to, you know, yank Mike down, because he was about to stand up and, and make an, a, a helpful comment. Yeah. <laughs> well it, it was it was very provoking. I mean the way the guy said it, i I felt like it. you know, yeah. I've always looked pretty at pig. Gee, that's too bad. You look horrible at old Rose. <laughs> 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 but that, actually, you know, funny enough, that also allows me to uh take a stand for another vestment color.
0: Okay, go on. Blue, blue, blue. uh um, No. Hmm. Okay.
1: I I I don't I don't mean I don't mean like the song by what's his name? The Polish guy. Um, you know, she wore blue vestments. Blue? No, no. Anyway, but seriously speaking. You will see in areas that were formerly part of the Spanish Empire, blue vestments, particularly on the feast of the Immaculate Conception, and on uh, well, the feast of the Immaculate Conception, and on some other Marian feasts, it varies. But it's a very particular color; it's light blue, cerulean, they call it, uh, or azul. But I thought that was all there was to it. And mind you, there's been a lot of uh jumping up and down from time to time in California. Because the question is, could we could our priests wear blue vestments on Marian Feasts, certainly in the Immaculate Conception, if since California was part of the Spanish Empire? And I have seen at least one priest do that for that very purpose in at one of the missions. But, and here's the big but. Uh, apparently, and I could be wrong, so if somebody knows better. You know, let me know. This is a privilege that can be had by countries the former Spanish Empire, but they have to ask for it. So that's uh, that's that's why they would do it in the Philippines. They do it in Puerto Rico and a lot of other places other than Spain. Uh, but the bishops do ask for it. It does seem to me that that would be uh, particularly appropriate for the United States as a whole simply because Our Lady of the Immaculate Conception is our patroness. And in a lot of places, it's only allowed on the Immaculate Conception. But wait, there's more. I've said that was all about Sierra Leone uh, blue. Here in Austria, I have found at Trinity masses and on certain Feasts of the Virgin, they wear royal blue vestments. Hmm. And I don't know anything about the history of it here. and Nobody can tell me. They just say it's an age-old custom. They've, they've always done it. But knowing that there was a big a close connection between Spain and Austria in days gone by, uh, the only thing I can assume is that it was somehow there. Oh, and the other thing is that uh, near Aachen in Germany, uh, a priest showed me uh, blue vestments that he had for Feasts of Our Lady. And he explained to me that because their part of the country had once been part of the Spanish Netherlands, that was why they had them. Mm. So this, this is the kind of uh, kind of thing I, I, I would love to see blue vestments return on a wider scale for Marian feasts.
0: Yeah, they're they're kind of hard to find. Googling it um, looks like the ICKSP did it in Belgium for um, what
1: is it, a Marian feast? Yeah, well, the Marian um, feast feast the only time you Yeah, them. yeah, but yeah, for the Immaculate Conception, that's the only time you you would do it is for a Marian feast. The, the Immaculate Conception would be the best. Yeah, uh, but just out of curiosity, I'm doing it myself. Uh well I see a few for sale the uh Cer- cerulean blue vestments from formerly colonial uh Peru. Yeah, these are 18th century. This is long before uh, as I understood it Carlos III had the uh had the right to uh, to do it. Uh y- yeah, this this is quite amazing but i'll i'll just show you where'd you go you're hiding from me here you go uh i will just uh send this to you there you go i see that's from peru Uh, in the 18th century. So, anyway, be on your guard. Old rose. Accept no substitutes. No pink, no lavender, no lilac. Old rose.
0: All right. All right, questions. Uh, We're going to start off with a couple of questions from Zenix. And he says... Uh, salutations gentlemen I'll keep it short so that the answers to these questions great in scope may be long would Charles please reveal all about the historical development and current state of the kingdom of Greece and its royal house
1: you betcha basically uh, modern Greece came out of the uh, Greek war of independence in the 1820s that Lord Byron uh was in on and uh died in. Um the eventually uh after five or six years of guerrilla warfare and so on, by the Greeks against the Turks, the uh the British, the French, the Russians, and the Austrians uh intervened navally and they came to the aid of the Greeks, and they basically told the Ottomans, recognize their independence, you're in bad shape. But Greece at that time was much smaller than it is now. It had the Peloponnesus, and it had uh, Attica, Boeotia, uh, everything south of Thessaly, and very few of the Greek islands. Uh, Crete, Rhodes, all that remained Turkish. So then the powers... Uh, needed to find a king for the new country. This was very common uh, around the same time when Belgium became independent from the Netherlands. The powers sought a royal candidate to be king of Belgium. And they eventually settled on Leopold of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha. And he was was the ancestor of the current Belgian dynasty. Well, they did the same thing with the the, uh, Greeks. And they found a Bavarian prince, Otto von Wittelsbach, uh, who was a relation to the king of Bavaria, and they placed him on the Greek throne. And he ruled more or less happily for 30 years. But then there was a revolution. He was forced to flee, and the new government wanted a different king. So they looked around, and they found a younger son of the king of Denmark, who was available for the job. And he became King Constantine the first of, uh, no, I'm sorry, King George the first of Denmark, of, uh, Prince of Denmark. He became George the first of Greece. Uh, he ruled until 1912 uh, and under his, uh, in his time, uh, Thessaly became part of, uh, part of Greece, Crete, and then uh, they began the Balkan Wars. George I, who sadly was assassinated, and he was replaced by his son, Constantine I. Uh, Constantine uh, presided over the Greek victories of the Balkan Wars, which led basically to the incorporation of Lesbos, Chios, the big islands off the coast of Turkey, and also northern Thrace and all of that. Uh, not uh, not Thrace, sorry, southern Macedonia, Thessalonica, all that became Greek under Constantine. Now, Constantine was married to a uh princess. And so when the war came, he uh, was very keen on keeping Greece neutral. This led to a real problem because his prime minister, uh, Venizelos, was keen on getting into the war on the side of the Allies. So eventually, uh, the Allies landed anyway. They took over Thessalonica. There was a a brief fight between the king and the prime minister, and the king was deposed and went to exile. Uh, And his uh, son, Alexander, became king. The uh, But the Alexander was basically a puppet. He wasn't able to do anything. And Venizelos was the master of Greece. Well, uh, when the war was over, having been an ally, Greece was given uh, northern Thrace from uh, Bulgaria, and also most of what is now Turkey and Europe, as well as the chunk of Turkey and Asia around Smyrna. Uh, or Izmir, as it's called today, but Venizelos dreamed of reviving the uh, of reviving the uh, Greek Empire in uh, Asia Minor. So he got involved in a war with the Turks, which ultimately they didn't have the means to win. Uh, but then Alexander King Alexander was. Uh, bitten by a uh, pet monkey and died. So there was a popular call for uh, King Constantine to come back, which he did. Um, You know, I may have messed this up. It could be that, uh, you know, I'm sorry, I've I've messed it up. uh, He did come back at any rate. Uh, Constantine came back. And he was, he took over the country uh, in the middle of this war in Turkey, which, as I say, Greece couldn't win, and Constantine couldn't win it. So, the uh, uh, the Greeks were pushed back out of Turkey by Kemal Ataturk. It was a horrible massacre in Smyrna in 1922. Uh, really horrible. Uh, or 1920 anyway 21 one of those years anyway the result of it all was an exchange of populations between Turkey and Greece and um, the, except for the Christians in Constantinople the Greeks in Constantinople uh, they were they all had to leave and go to Greece and then the Turks who were living in Greece all had to leave and go back to Turkey there were exceptions that I say the Greeks in Constantinople were allowed to stay and the Turks living in Thrace were allowed to stay. But otherwise, uh, populations that lived in these areas for centuries were uprooted and moved to alien countries, which was a, it was a terrible, terrible thing. So Constantine, because of this terrible defeat, he abdicated and his son Alexander became king. Alexander got uh, bitten by the monkey, and Greece was declared a republic. So, from 1924, I think, to 1935, the first Greek republic soldiered on and was poorly run, as republics so often are, by worthless, scummy, uh, opportunistic, worthless dogs. And the country. When the Depression hit, the country just got lower and lower and lower in the dirt. Well, finally, power uh, in Greece uh, fell to a general who said, let's have a referendum on bringing back the king. So they did. And Constantine's second son became George II of Greece. Uh, in his time, uh, General Metaxas took over running the country And he was sort of a right-wing populist character, uh, as was common, you know, like Dolphus in Austria, like Spatona in Lithuania, only with the Greek Orthodox Church occupying the place of the Catholic Church. So there they were. Uh, In 1939, or 1940 rather, uh, Mussolini, having already occupied Albania, decided to attack Greece thinking they'd be an easy target. Well, that was a mistake. They weren't. And they invaded Albania. Then sadly, for everybody concerned, Metaxas died. Uh, The Germans then invaded Greece in 1941. And the royal family were forced to flee, which they did, first to Egypt and then South Africa. Uh, And then the uh, uh, Axis swallowed up Greece. Well as you know in the uh, the Greek communists and uh, communists in all the balkans were funded by the uh, by the soviets but churchill hoping to keep greece from falling into what was going to be the fate of romania bulgaria yugoslavia albania etc in 1945 landed troops in greece so they secured a good chunk of the country the king came back uh, to greece his strong man was a general named Papagos, and there was a civil war between the royalists and the communists. By 1947, the communists were defeated, and uh, in 1948 or 49, I think, King George II died. He had no, uh, no uh, children, so his brother became King Paul. And he was married to a German princess named Frederica. Well, Greek politics have always been kind of uh, fragmented, shall we say? And one of the difficult uh, being king of Greece was sort of like being a log roller. <laughs> you know, you you you've got to try to maintain balance in a situation where nobody's balanced. Nobody. The Greek politicians were all out for their side, their side alone, kind of like the United States today. So Paul, having been through a lot, knew fairly well how to handle it. But he died in 1965, and his young son, Constantine II, became king. He was married to a uh, uh, Danish princess. Think she was Danish, was she Spanish, Danish? Uh, But they were, you know, I've I've got it mixed up in my head, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sorry. Was it the queen? The queen was the Spanish princess, I think. Anyway, whichever it was, Kant said she's still alive. By the way, Constantine. I mean, I could look this up in a minute. I don't know why I'm letting myself flail around and look like a moron. Of course, on the other hand, if I admit that I don't know everything, that might reassure the audience when I think I do know something. Uh, Yeah, his wife is Anne-Marie of Denmark. Uh, So I guess, maybe it's his sister, the the King of Spain, I forget. Anyway, we had some connection there. So, he married a Danish princess, which is a distant relation. Uh, and he was young, he was handsome, he was very popular. He'd actually been the, the captain of the Olympic sailing team for Greece. This is a big sailor. Uh, but there was a big rivalry between two men in Greek politics. One named Papadrio, who's left-wing, and the other was Karamanlis, who was you know, conservative. And eventually Papandreou won and he was pushing the country closer and closer to the Soviet Union. He was pro-communist. So the army overthrew it in 1967. Now this was a real problem for King Constantine because he was supposed to be the guarantor of the Constitution and the army enacted in an extra-constitutional way. However, the problem was that Papadrio was pushing the country from the other direction and in time would no doubt have gone extra constitutionally. So initially, the king went along with the coup, but he soon found out, soon realized that the coupsters did not intend to restore power to a civilian government, but to maintain a military junta. So he tried to counter coup on his own and he failed. So he had to leave the country. And from 1967 to 1973, the uh, Junta maintained the fiction that they were loyal to the king. But in in 1973, they had a phony uh, uh, referendum. And they got rid of the monarchy and established a Hellenic Republic under themselves. Strangely enough. So, uh, but then they got into trouble the following year over Cyprus. Because there was a, uh, Cyprus that had an easy balance between its Greek and Turkish residents. Uh, they got a Greek government in there which was very anti-Turkish. So the Turks intervened, and they sent troops into Cyprus, and they've occupied the northern part of it ever since. But this brought down the junta in Greece. Constantine Caramantilus, the quote-unquote conservative, came back and took control as a civilian leader, and one of the last free prime ministers of Greece. But he decreed that there would be a referendum on the monarchy, rather than simply... Reinstating the constitution, the king was not allowed to come back. He was not allowed to campaign. He wasn't allowed to do anything except one television broadcast. And the whole thing was stacked against him, and Konstantin Karavandalis showed himself to be a real horrendous traitor. Again, like the like the uh, like the. Uh, army officers he pretended to oppose. He was an oath-breaker. So from 1975 until his death last year, King Constantine was in exile. He died, and the worthless Greek government initially tried to keep it very, very low-key. And they were only going to send an, an assistant minister. They denied the king a state funeral you know, which even Austria did for Otto von Habsburg. Uh, It just, really, the whole thing was disgusting. But because so many foreign royalty came for the funeral, they sent a a minor cabinet minister and sort of upgraded it. But King Constantine, uh, who did get the chance to live uh, the last five or six years of his life in Greece, not in one of the palaces, of course, but in some apartment, he did manage to die in his homeland. And the funny thing about this is that Greece was saved from communism. It's no small part because of the King of Greece. Romania, Bulgaria, Yugoslavia Serbia, Albania, the communists threw out those monarchs their descendants, or in the case of Bulgaria, the king himself, are now once again living in one or more of their old palaces in their countries. Whereas Greece, which was saved from communism, continues to treat its royal family like pariahs. You know the it's 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 a, very, it's a very annoying story, to tell you the truth. And this is a man, Constantine, who He gave his life for his country, quite literally. He couldn't have done anything else. But he spent his time in exile, trying to help his country as much as he could. And you see that with monarch after monarch in exile. A deposed president generally takes as much of the treasury as he can flies to Switzerland and has a good time for himself. You know, when I knew the king of Rwanda, he, of course, lived in very reduced circumstances because he didn't take anything with him when he left Rwanda, when he was put out. And, you know, I said to him, it's, it's too bad that, you know, you don't have anything. And he said, nonsense. He said, my people are my wealth. That's what, all I need. And I said, well, I'll tell you the truth, your majesty, I'm just very disappointed you weren't a prime minister or a president. And he said, why is that? I said, well, he would have gone with three quarters of the national treasury. you would stick it all in a, in a Swiss bank account, and we'd all be living like kings right now. He said, don't worry. I am living like a king. <laughs> but you get that from monarchs. You don't get it from political figures. And, you know, as I said earlier, try trying to get uh, a, re- a religious experience out of politics is like trying to get drunk off orange juice. Well, similarly, trying to get the self-sacrificial fatherhood of a monarch out of a politician Is literally like trying to squeeze blood out of an onion. It's just not there. Now, that doesn't mean that some of them aren't better than others. It doesn't mean that some of them don't, in their own way, love their country. But they aren't consecrated to it, married to it, the way a monarch is. They can't be. And the other problem they've got is that an elected leader is really the leader of whoever voted for him, those in opposition. And that's the problem we have in our country now. There's no government over party. There's no government over politics. Everything is politicized. And the problem with that is that, natively speaking, the best things of any country the government deals with are apolitical by their nature. I mean, whether it's culture, agriculture, or or industry, or, uh, these things these things shouldn't be political. Even politi- politics, uh, sorry, foreign policy and uh, and, and uh, military policy, that too shouldn't be political. You need someone who's above party, who can see the general interests of the country, the common good, and be ready to work for it until and unless he dies trying. And that was Constantine II in spades. He's been succeeded by his son, Crown Prince Pavlos. Now I guess we should call him King Paul II. And uh, long may he reign. And may he one day sit in the palace of his fathers in Athens, and live in Tatoi Palace uh, in the countryside, and uh, do what a king should do without the, the creatures that crawl through those things today there was a uh, a funny thing I read uh, the royal palace in Athens is now inhabited by the president uh, and there was a funny thing i I saw there uh, let me see if I can find it quickly
0: uh, the uh while you're searching, I'll just I'll just uh, say uh, my two cents. Wouldn't it be cool if in if for if in our day and age a reputation like oathbreaker and kingslayer like got applied to your reputation like that? You know what I mean? Like these people yeah. can do this, and then. That's not attached to their reputation, you know. Yeah, um,
1: it it would be, uh, it would be, but you know, the uh, let me see, uh, there was a uh, there's a very funny article in. Uh, When Constantine went to Athens in in 2004, uh, he went to go see the palace. And he, uh, they stole all his property, of course, but, you know. uh, The, uh, He came back in 2004 on his own uh, his own thing. Uh, ah, here we go. This is funny. The visit to had once been the Royal Palace uh, occurred on December 24, 2004. It was horrible, uh, Constantine uh, exclaimed. All the former bedrooms don't exist. God. Everything else, every room is an office. I asked him, how many people work here? He told me 120. I had 13. Today, the president has a huge amount of security, and according to the Constitution, the president has paid a salary and it's his money. Constantine continued, now the running of the presidential palace is paid for with the taxpayers' money. So are the president's telephones, heating cards, drivers, clothes, state visits all paid for by the state. For us, it was the complete opposite. We were paid X amount, I think it was 7, 000, 7 million drachmas, which, you know, the drachma was like the lira. And I paid for my own education with an inheritance because my father was running out of money. <laughs> Part of the excuse against you is that royalty costs too much. But royalty costs so much less. Today we have, I don't know, three or four, three or four former heads of state, presidents, all of them have pensions, and so do all their police, security, drivers, and secretaries. So at that time in 2004, when the when the king had 13 members of staff running the royal palace, there were 120 under the president of Greece in 2004. And all of it paid by the state, whereas he had to pay for it out of his own pocket. Hmm. And the funny thing is, in the remaining uh, in the remaining uh, constitutional monarchies in Europe, in Britain and Belgium and the Netherlands and Sweden and Norway and Denmark and Spain, the properties of the monarchy, of the king, have now been taken over by the government, in return for which they get an allowance. But if they had control of their own properties once more, they wouldn't need that allowance. But see, then they wouldn't be beholden to the kind of slime buckets that prowl around parliaments, now, would they? Wouldn't that be terrible? It would be awful. Poor little you know, prime ministers. So sad for you. How can you tell when one of them are lying? They're talking. So, I never thought much of the political class. But, you know, the thing that really pushed me over the uh, over the edge into being a monarchist was that referendum in Greece. Because I remember it. I was a teenager. And I remember thinking, my God, what a bunch of utter slime buckets. Worthless dogs. And that was the beginning, in a sense, of a revelation. It's not just Greek politicians. Prostitutes are the same the world over. The languages are different. The customs and traditions are different. But the trade is the same. Hmm.
0: Okay. Um, well... How long are we going to go into Egypt? Like, let, let do likewise with Egypt, spanning as far back and with as much excruciating detail as possible. Is this going to be as long as as Greece?
1: Longer, because Egypt goes all the way back to ancient times. No, I'm not going to do that.
0: Well, we're, we're at the hour mark. Um, I'm not. Is... I'm not going to do that. Yeah, relax. no, I don't want you to do that. I don't want. I'm you not going to so. relax.
1: It's a great what time. I'm going to talk about is the the modern. Egyptian state. Oh, okay. So, but just...
0: but that's not complying with Xenix's request though. He's saying spanning as far back and with as much excruciating detail as possible.
1: Excruciating details are all up at the front.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> okay. However, it is important to bear in mind that Egypt was of course one of the four great uh civilizations of mankind, the other three being Mesopotamia, the Indus Valley, and China. The only ancient civilization that survives, of course, today in something like itself is China. Okay. But Egypt, uh, they went. They had quite a few different dynasties, but the originally the uh, the country was divided into Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt. Uh, the symbol of the one of them was the uh, the red crown; the other was the white crown. Then, under the Pharaoh Narmer, many many years BC, they were united, and so the crown of the Pharaohs combined the red and white crowns of Upper and Lower Egypt. Now, as you've guessed, since there are uh, many many centuries of ancient Egyptian. Uh, uh, history during which they created mummies and the the pyramids and the sphinx and all that and their unique religion with isis and osiris and so forth we're going to rush very very quickly past all that that egypt in a very real sense came to an end when it was conquered by the persians Uh, it became a persian colony then eventually the persians were defeated by alexander the great One of his generals, Ptolemy, settled down in Egypt. And now Egypt was again an independent uh, monarchy under the descendants of the Ptolemies. Uh, They were a Greek family. They kept their purity because they began marrying uh, brother and sister. So they stayed very ethnically Greek, that's for sure. Uh, The last... One of them was Ptolemy XIV, who was the son of Cleopatra. You remember her, the queen of denial. She never admitted anything. But she she and her lover, Mark Antony, were being pursued by the Roman uh, legions. She committed suicide. Egypt's independence came to an end, and it became a province of the Roman Empire. And so it was for a very long time. It became Christian very quickly uh, after Christ came. You remember the Holy Family went to Egypt, and to this day, Egyptian Christians are very proud of that, and they will point out all the places the Holy Family stayed. Uh, I mean, literally, there any place the Holy Family stayed in Egypt is commemorated with the church and so on and so forth. And all that was very, 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 very nice until the. Uh, 400s, you had the Council of Chalcedon, and a good chunk of the uh, Egyptian Christians broke off and formed what's called the Coptic Orthodox Church. But the Greek Orthodox Patriarchate of Alexandria continued. And many centuries later, you had Catholic Catholic Coptic Church uh, start. So those are the three major groups of Christians in Egypt today. Uh, the uh, uh, Egypt was conquered by the Muslims in the 600s, uh, and slowly but surely, Islamized. Until now, depending on who you talk to, nowhere more than 15 to 25 percent of the population are Christian, but that's still very high for a, uh, you know, for a uh, Muslim country. They went into various regimes, uh, different Muslim regimes after the breakup of the Caliphate. Finally, they were conquered by the Ottoman Empire from uh, the Ayyubids, uh, who were, uh, or no, I'm sorry, not the Ayyubids, the Mamelukes. The Ayyubids had been a, uh, a dynasty in the 1400s. They were overthrown by their mercenaries, the Mamelukes, and then they in turn were conquered by the Ottomans. So the Ottoman sultans ruled Egypt into the uh, early 19th century, very early 19th century, but the Ottomans, of course, employed Muslims from all over the realms as governors and, and commanders and so on. So they appointed an Albanian fellow named Muhammad Ali to be the uh, governor of Egypt, the Khedive. So from 1801 to into the 1820s, Muhammad Ali became more and more powerful. And eventually he forced the Sultan to make his role hereditary. And that was the beginning of the modern uh, Egyptian monarchy, and uh, the modern Egyptian royal family, who are Albanian in descent. So they went through a number of them. Uh, in 1867, uh, the, uh, the, the then Khedive, as these hereditary governors were called, uh, sold the rights to the Suez Canal to a French company, and it was opened in 1867. Alexandria became a very, very uh, cosmopolitan city. And Cairo, too, to a degree. With Greeks and French and Italians uh, and all that. Uh, But the British became, because of the Suez Canal, the British uh, became more and more powerful in Egypt. Uh, There was an attempt to get rid of them in 1885, was it? I forget. Under Arabi Pasha, he was defeated, and so from that time on, Egypt was de facto a British protectorate. And in the meantime, under the Khedives, the Egyptians had pushed up the Nile south into Sudan. And their their first uh, major governor to do this was a man named Charles Gordon, who had fought for the Emperor of China in the Taiping War. And he was called Chinese Gordon. He had been fired by the Khedive because of his uh, success and efforts of uh, suppressing the slave trade. But there arose a religious leader in the Sudan called the Mahdi, who was uh, basically wanted to conquer Sudan and then Egypt and so forth. So the Khedive rehired Chinese Gordon. And he was besieged in Khartoum, the capital of Sudan. The British eventually were forced by public opinion to send a relief column. They came too late. They came a day or two after the city had fallen and Gordon of Khartoum was murdered. But they exacted a terrible revenge. And in short order, uh, Sudan became a condominium nominally. It was called the Anglo-Egyptian Sudan, but in truth, the British ran it, and the Egyptian uh, Kedeeb just sort of went along with the deal. What was interesting, though, was that they were expanding to the south, the British were, into what's now South Sudan, Uganda, and so forth, Equatoria it was called. Whenever they would make contact with a new chief and a new tribe, they would sign a treaty with them, which would bring them under British protection. But these treaties were all boilerplate. They all said the same thing. And they had the phrase that uh, this was between the British, uh, the you know the tribal chief, uh, his Britannic Majesty or her Britannic Majesty, the Khedive of Egypt and the Sultan, the Ottoman Sultan, because remember the Khedive is still supposed to be feudatory of the Sultan, and it it had the the words you know the rights or this or that except those rights reserved to His Majesty the Ottoman Sultan. Well, one day, a, uh, a local British official was reading the thing, because, you know, it's boilerplate. They just pull them out of the pad and sign it. The tribe is now under British control. Well, he reads this, and he thinks, gee, I wonder what the rights are reserved to the Sultan, who has them because of the Khedives' nominal obedience to him. And are there because of their the British and Sudan's nominal obedience to the Khedive, So he sends a letter to the Foreign Office and asks, what are these rights that are reserved to the Ottoman Sultan, And the fellow at the Foreign Office wrote back, I have no idea, but whatever they are, they're reserved to him. So that was the weird constitutional relationship the British rule in Egypt was based upon. But then, in 1914, war broke out, as you know, World War One in 1915, Turkey came into the war on the side of Germany, Austria, and Bulgaria. So the British deposed the uh, the then Khedive, who was too pro-Turkish, replaced him with a, a son or a nephew, who uh, agreed to become a British uh, a, a British protectorate, and he went from being Khedive of Egypt to King of Egypt. I believe he was Fuad II. I mean, uh, sorry, Fuad so, uh, the first. So, the after the war in which the Turks were defeated, Egypt in 1922 nominally became an independent kingdom. The British protectorate was ended, although they still had control of the Suez Canal, and they still had a lot. Of, they still had the naval base in Alexandria. They still had a lot of pull. In 1930 something the old king died, and his son, King Farouk, became king. And Farouk was very keen on maintaining the independence of Egypt as against the British. But he had to be very careful. Because if he was too independent, the British would not mind deposing him. And this became even more of a problem after uh, World War II broke out and the Italians in Libya invaded Egypt. So, fortunately for King Farouk, he uh, never provoked the British sufficiently that they got rid of him. However, that would come in time. So the war ends. In 1948, Israel uh, declares independence. King Farouk joins the, uh, joins the uh, uh, other Arab powers in trying to suppress Israel. They're all defeated. And time goes by. Now, it so happened that the United States, in the form of the Central Intelligence Agency, decided that they wanted to get rid of King Farouk and replace him. There was a group of uh, young officers led by uh, a by a fellow called General Naguib, but actually uh, organized by a man named Colonel Gamal Nasser, Uh, and the Americans uh, prompted them, supported them, and paid to a degree for them to overthrow King Farouk in 1952. So he's overthrown, he goes into exile, but his infant son is declared to be King Fuad II of Egypt. Uh, That arrangement lasted for a year. And then Uh, General Naguib was overthrown, the monarchy was abolished, and it became the Republic of uh, Egypt, the United Arab Republic. Uh, And that was the end of the Egyptian monarchy. But King Fouad is still very much alive. Remember, he was only an infant then. King Farouk died in 1965 in Rome in exile. But he was the one who made the famous comment, one day, there'll only be uh, five kings left. The king of Great Britain for the uh, the card deck. Wow. What was funny about that is that we brought Nasser to power, and he immediately became pro-Soviet. So I guess that was a real winning. You know, we, we know what we're doing. Yep. See, when you're smart... Stupid things happen, right?
0: <laughs> I don't know if that's how that goes.
1: No, I tell you, you know, whenever I think of that, of that, of our, of our pushing Farouk off the throne and replacing him with Nasser, I always think of the story about the little retarded kid. Yeah, you remember that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, all the all the kids would gather every day when the uh, the uh, ice cream truck would come. And they'd all clap, you know. But the little retarded kid, who always makes me think of the U.S. government, would go. No. Well, the ice cream salesman got a little tired of that. So he took the kids' heads and he put them together. And he made them go like this. And he said, now, if you can do that for me tomorrow when I arrive, I'll give you a free ice cream cone." So the kid goes, okay. And he practiced. All day, at night, when he's lying in his bed, he was, and then in the morning. So, the ice cream man arrives. As I say, this reminds me of American foreign policy. The ice cream man arrives, the guy claps when the ice cream man comes out. Well, the ice cream man is really happy. So, he says to the kid, here's your free ice cream code, and here's the American State Department response to anything. The right ex- the wrong execution of the wrong idea.
2: Hee he- 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 he.
1: Let's see what we can do. President Wilson at Versailles. I know. just us reorganize Europe. He- he- he. I got it all up here. Wow. President Roosevelt at Yalta. He, 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 would divide the world with Uncle Joe Stalin. He, he, he. It worked out pretty well. Or, I mean, think of it, overthrowing the Shah of Jimmy Carter. Now there's a gift that keeps on giving. Turning around from a close U.S. ally to what it is now. He, he, he. <laughs> Be smart. Or for that matter, uh, Mr. Bush uh, Jr. telling the Afghans, uh, no, you're not restoring your king," on television. That worked out well, didn't it? What? I think that these men should be (sighs) venerated for the good they've done their country, the world, and humanity as a whole.
0: What you're not what you're saying is not what I learned in school today.
1: That's a little puppy whining.
0: No, I I'm 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 also referring to your song. What did I learn in school? What did
1: you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? I learned our government must be strong; it's always right and never wrong. Our leaders are the finest of men. We elect them again and again, and that's what I learned <laughs> in school today. That's what I learned in school. It's true, and yeah, well, you know what they—you know what they—they you know, say the the uh, definition of sanity is what doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome. Yeah, isn't that what sanity is?
0: Yes. Good. Okay, I feel better. All right, we have to move on. Uh, okay, Andrew from New Jersey says, "Paramus,
1: oh, do you know, did you hear about the uh, did you hear about the rioters that ran through Paramus? What about them? Well, they did. There was a lot of destruction. They said Paramus was mauled."
0: Okay, uh, <laughs> Andrew from New Jersey. Uh, <laughs>
1: You heard about the gangster's uh, girlfriend Who came from there? No Yeah, she was the famous Paramus Mall.
0: Okay Um, Andrew says Why has there been such a precipitous decline In the quality of The American celebrity over the last Hundred years I suppose they are more vulgar now Because our times are more vulgar But they also seem worse now in almost every other way, including talent and ability. This seems to have been a progressive decline as well. Celebrities seemed more talented in the 50s than they did in the 60s, than they did in the 70s, than they did in the 80s. Benny Goodman had more pure talent than Frank Sinatra, who had more than Elvis, who had more than Eminem, etc. Charles, why are the glamorous so unglamorous now, and how did it get that way?
1: Well, there are a lot, of, uh, a lot of answers to that, and not just a single one. And I'll mention a few, but I'm sure I'm leaving out some. Part of it is that glamour is an adult thing. You know, ever since the 60s, everyone's tried to be, stay a kid forever. Well, that's nice. I mean, you're you're bound to fail. I mean, look at me. My hair should be dark brown, but for some reason it's not. Uh, Possibly because I've been around a long time. I don't know. But um, the attempt to basically stay a teenager forever was the death of glamour. Because glamour is an adult thing. You know? I mean, a young person can be very good looking. But they can't be glamorous, because glamour it implies a certain sophistication, a certain experience that you know a normal young person one hopes doesn't have. Uh, imagine Debbie Reynolds as Tammy versus Marlena Dietrich. They're both blonde, but what a difference! You know, about Marlena Dietrich, she was very glamorous. In a way, that Debbie Reynolds, who was always the sort of innocent, yeah, I mean, even into her old age, she came across that way. Who knows what she was really like? But she came across as a sort of sweet, innocent chick, which was wonderful in its way. You know, Don't get me wrong. Sweet, innocent is not bad at all. But it's not glamorous. Whereas, uh, you know, Melinda Dietrich had a song called The Laziest Girl in Town. And, you know, she's got this mane of blonde hair and this sort of worldly wise look. And she, the lines were, uh, it's not because I shouldn't. And it's not because I wouldn't. And you know it's not because I couldn't. It's just because I'm the laziest girl in town. Well, you know, that implies everything. It tells you nothing. But it's very glamorous. So well, it's not glamorous when I do it, but it was when she did it. Um, and similarly with men, you know, you saw Fred Astaire, you saw Clark Gable. Uh, these men were elegant, were glamorous, but again, that's an adult thing. And from my generation down to the present, Celebrities have been encouraged to be as unadult as possible. One of the things you talked about during the break was how uh, Motown, what is her name? I, this lady was really, really incredible. She was great. Motown, which introduced a lot of black acts, both male and female, in the, in the early 60s. Glamour was still a thing then. Uh, and so they hired a lady uh, to teach it. To their uh, Miss Manners of Motown, uh, the uh, there she is, Maxine Powell. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. It says, um, all my life I was thinking of things that would help my race become outstanding. And I thought of class and style. Two things would be accepted around the world. That was Maxine Powell. And she says, one of the most influential members of the team of image makers working for Motown Records was Maxine Powell. Maxine Powell had been a model who ran a successful finishing school in Detroit. She taught all of the artists at the label, and particularly women, about poise. This included direction on how to walk, how to dress, how to politely converse, and even how to sit correctly in a chair. When artists were in Detroit, they were required to spend two days a week in artist development. Not all the artists in Motown believed they needed polishing, but Maxine is remembered as saying, quote, one day you may be performing before kings and queens, end of quote. This image of comportment and respectability helped black artists enter spaces previously denied to them, and helped pave the way for future artists who could be accepted as themselves. Well, frankly, I don't think anybody should be accepted as himself just on that basis. But uh, that was Maxine Powell. And she did an amazing job. Well, uh we said earlier during the uh during the uh pre show about how uh in the golden age of Hollywood the actors who often came from very, very uh, very bad backgrounds, very poor backgrounds, some of them, very unpleasant past, nevertheless, did their best to behave in an elegant manner, to give this this image of elegance, because that is what society as a whole aspired toward. People wanted to be better than they were. They aspired to something better. I mean, this was why you look at the old photos and you see uh, workmen on the side of the road, they're all wearing ties under their overalls. I mean, uh, you know, obviously there were exceptions, but as a society, people were trying to better themselves. Now we have no desire to. And part of it was because very much in the 60s, There was this thing about, oh, be who you are, be authentic. You know, what that really means is if you're at the bottom of the pile, stay there. And it didn't help that our so-called celebrities and our upper classes, etc., began imitating the lowest of the low. Now, as to the loss of talent, etc., well, uh, part of it is the decline of education in general. People know less. The vocabulary has shrunk. Um, people in in that particular sense are stupider. They don't know stuff. Now, it's not because they've become natively stupider. You know, there's stupid pills that are smashed up and put in the water. It's just that education has continued a steady downward decline. They're taught less and less. And what they are taught is a lot of it garbage. You know? You're taught critical race theory, but you're not taught how to write a paper. You know, you're not taught how to read uh, anything more complex than, well, the latest critical race theory manual. Basically, if you're stupid, you're good. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. Obviously, it's made a, a more easily governed, a more easily bullied population, and that's what it's all about, right? That's the price of freedom is being kicked into a corner. That's the only way you can tell you're free but you have to be kicked around by somebody you voted for so that you know that you know you're part of the process <laughs> no that makes ah, up for it.
0: yeah no just trust the process
1: <laughs> Trust the process that's right so I like trust the program. Trust the process. When Governor Newsom <laughs> becomes President Newsom, and he's fleecing everybody right and left, it'll be a good thing because we all voted. Yes. You know, once again, you get this sort of weird disbelief thing going. What? I'm telling you. You, you looked – I made that last statement, and you looked disbelieving. You looked critical, in fact. I think Governor Newsom being elected president of the United States would be the most fitting and appropriate thing that could be done. After all, if we become a nation of baby killers, we need a president who resembles us.
0: Okay. I'm not critical of your words. Now, stop being critical of my face. All right. Moving on. Andrew from New Jersey. I never Uh... critique
1: your face, although it looks kind of Italian.
0: You were critiquing my face. You're critiquing my facial expressions. They were unacceptable uh, for,
1: to you. That's different. Your expressions, that's different. That's
0: my face.
1: No, your face is a separate entity. <laughs> okay. <laughs> don't ask me where I'm coming, with the, coming up with this stuff from. I don't know. I don't know. You don't know. We don't know. Um, we are the walrus. Cuckoo, kaju.
0: Here we go. Some beetles, finally.
1: Um, you know, what, what I about. was telling. Uh, In the town where I was born, there lived a man who sailed the sea. And he told us of our life, of his life rather, in the land of submarines. We all live in a yellow submarine. A yellow submarine. It's
0: it's interesting that Andrew says Elvis and not. not, um, The Beatles. Right? I think that's interesting. I I don't know where I heard of this sort of choice, but it's like you're an Elvis person or you're a Beatles person,
1: you know? What if you're neither and both? That's deep.
0: All right. Uh, Final question for this episode uh, is from Andrew from New Jersey, who says, what are Charles's top five off-the-menu moments? These could be favorite questions, epic rants, running gags, or anything else. Vinny, please also feel free to answer this one
1: wow mm. eight years worth that's hard uh I'd say probably the first time uh the first time officer Clancy Billy clubbed his way in the studio
0: definitely that was um that was something
1: I uh, I would think uh coming in and uh, finding all of the uh, all of the employees were in cocoons <laughs> Estimating, that was sort of an unusual moment.
0: Uh, yeah, it's kind of a, a culture shock there.
1: Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Uh, seeing the toaster ovens in the, uh, in the uh, gift shop. That's right.
0: Um, one of my favorite moments, um, I, I actually really liked the episode that um, Bill came on. I, yes. I think it was like episode, I don't know, it's the 70s or 80s I think. And one of the ones one of the reasons I like that is well we were planning that for a long time. I wanted to do that for a long time. And yeah. I had I think we we had that idea. It, it was very low tech special effects, but I wanted to do that where we just kind of like zoom him in or like we um like Star Trek style, you know?
1: Yeah. Uh, And And, he replaced you.
0: And he replaced me. Yeah, he beamed in. Um, in, That was that was really fun. I really liked that a lot.
1: That was that was that was a fun episode. The the uh, although this was not a single event uh, during the COVID lockdown, uh, it was really a heartening thing. The number of people wrote in to thank us for "quote unquote" keeping them sane.
0: Yeah, well that, that yeah. That was when our viewership was the highest.
1: Um yeah. you know, uh by far. Well they didn't have anything else going on, yeah. so you know, but and then you know one of the most extraordinary things that happened to me is so far through the course of the show. Uh I got on the elevator and it was it was very because it was the very first time this ever happened. Uh you, there were there there was the thirteenth floor. Of course, there really wasn't, you know, I mean, at least I didn't think there was. But I see the 13, and I thought, gosh, what does this mean? I was alone in the elevator, so that was, you know, problematic. So it stopped at 13, and then the door opened up, and it... I'm sorry, what were we talking about?
0: Running uh your favorite off the menu
1: moments ah so also i uh, I would say the the uh, the time that I, I reappeared at your place without any warning
0: When was that?
1: It was well I had, I, had, I was back in Southern California for my uh, for my uh, niece's wedding. And we didn't announce that I was going to be back. I was just there. I like that.
0: Oh right, yeah. We didn't tell the the folks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. We uh, tell, I was just
1: suddenly there. because <laughs> 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 yeah. remember, it was, only, it was it was could only be for the one time because yeah. I was just in town for the wedding. Yeah. So there he is. Five. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but we've we've had. We've had an awful lot of, uh, you know, and, of course, the questions. uh, They're always challenging. Uh, They're always challenging, and I I think... uh, well no, i mean that's really the audience is the heart of the show
0: yeah no the the audience is the heart of the show um which is why i i think some of my favorite episodes were when were the really uh, thematic episodes for halloween when we were getting a lot of halloween questions and then and then christmas i felt like we, those were specific questions that really uh i thought you had special answers to um like uh that sense of wonder i think you were talking about that sense of wonder i think that that emanated out of a question about santa claus right like oh it, is it okay to tell that he's a lie or you know in that and then you defended the, the notion of telling your kids santa claus because there's that wonder there i thought that was yeah. really uh, special. and i like putting i like dressing up putting on you know getting in front of the 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 christmas tree um and all that stuff uh, for Christmas.
1: That no, no, no. well, was fun. And, uh, you know, and, and I have to say, the, the glazed donuts, of course, were, were always good. Yes, glazed donuts. Right. Um, you might say I'm deeply invested in glazed donuts.
0: <laughs> That's for sure. Um, yeah, because I guess they don't have them in Europe like they have them here. Um,
1: well, they're not the same. The taste isn't the same. What Flour else? is different. Uh,
0: The first time you really broke me, I I, I really liked – that was really fun because it kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, It was shortly after you went to Europe and then – because we were doing this and um, the split screen. And you talked about transgender –
1: Winston Churchill.
0: Transgender Winston Churchill, which was just the most absurd thing I've ever heard. The blending of – like Barack Obama with transgenderism with Winston Churchill jargon just was
1: Well that was fun and I, I kinda liked the idea of Carl uh, Rahner and Teletta Chardin manning a, a machine gun nest during the Battle of Los Angeles.
0: Someone cited that that we forgot to that you forgot to mention that. What were they singing?
1: Uh Praise the Lord and Pass the Ammunition. There you go. There you they go.
0: Were... <laughs>
1: That's right. They did the, they did their part, you know, during the Battle of Los Angeles.
0: I love that imagery. I don't know, that's special. I like I like to think of that, you know?
1: Yeah, it's 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 well, I mean, it does speak to a particular kind of uh ethos. Yes. I guess but uh I guess it was last week we found out that uh they'd cancelled the reenactment of the uh of the Battle right. Of right so that owls could live
0: right the um because they got a nest in that area
1: Our great horned owls so I uh, you know it has been a it has been a funny thing going back and forth between New York, New Jersey. L.A., Arcadia, which is its own place, uh, Austria, the, the, the uh, you know, what is funny is that this show has been very much a creation of the Internet age. And, yeah, I mean, it would be possible otherwise. We just couldn't do it. Um, and our audience is, uh, you know, not simply multi-state but multinational. Uh, and we're used to that. Yeah, you know, which is funny because uh, even twenty five years ago, it would have been unthinkable. But now, I take it as a matter of course that I might hear from somebody in Britain or Germany or South Africa or whatever, and say, you know, I really liked what you said on the show, or I disliked it. What about this? What about that? It's amazing. Really amazing. Great time to be alive, ladies and gentlemen, despite everything. Great time to be alive.
0: Absolutely. But just, you know, all, there's all this stuff that you learned from the show, too, that, that I really appreciate. Um, I mean, there's so many different... Um, I mean, it's kind of like the, the wonder thing, where you point out a very important aspect of psychology and life, having that wonder... That I don't know if I would have ever gotten there had you not said that, Um, and some some other things, right? Like the, um, I mean, there's so many Charles um, sort of truth bombs that sort of come out, like uh, the altar, hearth and hearth and king, right? The the three, um, so those three things, how important and integral those things are. I don't think i've heard anyone talk about that in that manner before and i feel like it's so potent
1: um well you know again i I can only thank my dad and various other people that helped put me together and and that you know this is something that's a lot in my mind uh not from the standpoint of leaving a legacy quote unquote you know i the last thing i'd want is a colombian school uh but rather leaving behind tools to deal with the world we live in. Because, mm. you know, I'm not going to be around all that much longer. I don't mean I'm dying tomorrow, but, you know, I'd be, I, in 30 years I'd be 93, which is highly unlikely. Uh, so I've got a lot more yesterdays than I do tomorrow, so there's no, no way around that. So that being the case, one wants to leave behind, for as many people as possible, the best that one has, the best of what one has learned, the best of what one has seen. And part of it, too, I'll share a deeply personal thing, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I had no uncles by blood. I had three uncles by marriage, two of whom I didn't think much of, the other of whom I got along with all right, but he and I were very different people. And I promised God when I was nine or 10 that if he gave me nephews uh, and nieces or nieces, um, I would try the very best I could to be the kind of uncle I had wanted to have. Really and truly, that's what governed my dealing with the kids as they appeared. And I ended up getting 10 from my brother and sister-in-law. So that gave me a lot of, shall we say, um, Uncle street cred, (laughs) ha-ha, avuncular cred. Well, in the years since, you know, I've become aware that uh, the age range of our audience is young, and the same is true of a lot of the stuff I write and other things I do, and I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful because, in a sense, um, God gave me an army of nephews and nieces. Um, And that's a relationship because we're such a mobile uh, society now. You barely got nuclear families, but with everybody being broken up, the extended family almost doesn't exist. But it used to be a very, very important part of society. Uh, I had a great uncle on my father's side who uh, my brothers named after him. Uh, his well, he was a great uncle by marriage. His wife was my grandmother's uh, sister. But they had no children, despite their best efforts. So, down through the years, uh, relatives, young relatives who had difficulties of one kind or another would end up staying with Uncle Andre and Tata you know, for periods. And he had a reputation of being able to straighten kids out. <laughs> and that became his thing in the family. You know, I mean, he wasn't nasty or abusive or anything like that. He was actually an inventor by trade. And he he um, invented a way to make seersucker, as in the suits, very cheaply. And so the seersucker companies paid him not to mock his patent. And he lived off that for the rest of his life. He called the house he built the house the seersucker built. <laughs> That, at any rate, I mean, that, it tells you something. He, he had a wicked sense of humor. It tells you the kind of man he was. But that that big house, I mean, he often would play host, both to you know his relatives by blood and his relatives by marriage. If there were kids that had some sort of problem or other, they'd stay a couple of months with Uncle Andre, and they're never quite the same. I mean, in a good way. Yeah. And I, I mentioned this simply because. That was the case for a lot of families. You know, if the extended family functions, the different members of it, just like in a small family, they kind of assume roles. You know. Um, Do you remember the movie uh, Peggy Sue Got Married? No. It came out in 86 with uh, Kathleen Turner as this woman who... uh, Basically gets conked on the head and she goes back in time twenty years to high school again.
0: Oh, uh, you showed the, the clips on YouTube and you showed me it. I remember this. This is if you could see your parents when they were young, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's the one. Well, she goes to see her, her grandparents, who are of course long dead in the present. And uh there's a funny line in it. She says, you know, she they believe her. They believe her story, so she tells them a bit about what's happened. And uh, <laughs> she says, You know, we are, uh, I hardly ever, see, now that you're gone, since you've been gone, I hardly ever see the cousins anymore. And the grandfather is tying as tight. He says, I've always said it was your grandmother's strudel that kept this family together. <laughs> but see, that in itself, that's something we should all try to resist. You know we should try to reach out to our cousins, even if they're across the country and all that it's difficult because very often they're in entirely different headspaces than we are. They're doing things completely differently, but nevertheless, it's worth trying. but anyway, the reason why I bring all this up is simply that you know, in a lot of ways my my dear uh, my dear audience, I'm quite aware that. Uh, You're sort of nephews and nieces for me. I guess I'm old Uncle Charles for you. And it is a position I hope to continue to occupy well. I hope so long as I've got the strength and the the, uh, energy, if I've done you any good, to continue to do it. Um, You know, we've had a lot of laughs on this show, I hope. I hope we've gotten some insights and some information. Your questions very often challenge me to think about things in a different way, or to look into something that normally I would never would have. So it's not a one-way street. Believe me, um, it gives me a little bit of an idea on where young America's head is at. Oh my God! I mean, I mean, it's a great privilege. Thank you. That's what I meant. I said it's a great privilege. You heard that? Great privilege. Great privilege. Yep. Great privilege. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. It's wonderful. It could be better if we tried. We that bless the wee ones will have naught to fear.
0: Uh (laughs) Your favorite poem. Okay. (laughs)
1: Yeah. (laughs) But no, seriously, ladies and gentlemen, it's it has been a great honor thus far. Uh, to to work with Vinny in, in producing this show for you. And I hope we can continue doing it for a very long time. Uh, and I hope you continue to get something out of it. Um, you know, it's, it's crazy, the world we live in. But it's important to remember that that's all it is. Because amidst all the nastiness and the horror, there's goodness and there's truth and there's beauty. And for the sake of your own soul and your own sanity, you need to identify the good, the true, and the beautiful wherever it is you are, right where you are, whether it's in Arcadia or Tasmania. There's something there. Find it. Glom onto it. Enjoy it. That sense of wonder you spoke of, It's necessary because things, when you look at them the right way, they really are wonderful. You know, I've said it before on the show, and I'll say it a thousand times. If you look back at anything good that's happened in your life, and you think of the concatenation of circumstances that were required for it to happen, you wouldn't believe it in a novel. You'd say, that's crazy. It never happened like that. It couldn't happen. Except it does. And that's the wonder of life, you see. That's the wonder of life. We're going through Lent right now. Laetare Sunday will come up. No Pretty in Pink. We've been on that. And then Easter, after the, the, the incredible drama of Holy Week, we'll have Easter. And then Ascension and Pentecost, Corpus Christi, the Sacred Heart. And then the summer. will be in full full rage. It'll be autumn again, and then Christmas, and so it'll go, whether we're here or not. And that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Now, I wanted to stop when I go.
0: It, um, no, I I meditate on that a lot because, as a nervous person, it's very comforting. Because if you're if you're actually matter and everything's important. Then it's time to be nervous, but if if you're just a little a little grain of sand on this endless beach, and you're just a very small person, and it's a small thing, and God's a very big thing, like in, unfathomably, you got nothing to worry about.
1: Not yeah. really, and I I have to admit, I uh, there's one of Tolkien's poems which I know I've done here before, but. It's all right. I don't mind. Uh, it really describes where I am right now, ladies and gentlemen, in my headspace and timing. Is this a, Sorry, the 60s was ever with me. This
0: is a Tom Bombadil but poem? Nevertheless, this is, hmm? I said, is this a Tom Bombadil poem? No, no, no.
1: <laughs> no, it's not. It's a, But it's a very much a Bilbo Baggins poem. It is a Bilbo Baggins poem, so here you go. I sit beside the fire and think of all that I have seen, of meadow flowers and butterflies and summers that have been, of yellow leaves and gossamer and autumns that there were, with morning mist and silver sun and wind upon my hair. I sit beside the fire and think of how the world will be when winter comes without a spring that I shall ever see. For still, there are so many things that I have never seen. In every wood, in every spring, there is a different green. I sit beside the fire and think of people long ago, and people who will see a world that I shall never know. But all the while I sit and think of times there were before, I listen for returning feet and voices at the door. And that that pretty much sums up where I am right now. And, Ladies and gentlemen, it's your voices and your feet amongst a lot of others I sit and listen for every week. So.
0: All right. Well, thank you for watching, everyone. And remember, if it's Monday.
1: Don't don't help me. I I work best without assistance. Okay. I, I work without a net. It's the view. No, 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 no. Try I know. <laughs>
0: right.
1: I, I, I. I can do it. I can do it. It's. 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 It's off the menu. Very
0: good. What about the soul you save, though?
1: Oh, that's your own. That I know.
2: <laughs> <laughs> All
1: right, See you next time, everyone. They, they wouldn't tell you that on the view.
2: <laughs> Take
1: care.